This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. In our second segment today, we're going to talk to an old friend of this program, James Israel, the publisher and editor of the Comic Press News, which has now been renamed the Humor Times. The current issue, that of April 2007, marks the 16th anniversary of the publication. And yes, there will be a birthday bash for the uh, publication's sweet 16th. We said on last week's show we were going to try and do something about Indiana, an Indiana story for our listeners on WECI. And uh, we looks as though we've obtained an Indiana correspondent, Jeremy Newton, formerly of KDVS, currently of WFHB, Community Radio in Bloomington, Indiana. If all goes well, we'll speak with Jeremy before the hour's up. If not, uh, we'll bring him on in a future installment of this program. Let's begin the program as we like to do with On This Date in History, which in our case today is April 5th. On April 5th, 1753, the British Parliament founds the British Museum. The British Museum, of course, is one of the world's great institutions of its type. Uh, if you've never been to London, put it on your to-do list when you get there. If you've been there already, of course, you know what I'm talking about. This correspondent was quite uh, pleased to have seen some of the remnants of the uh, seven wonders of the ancient world stored in the museum, and although I probably shouldn't admit to doing this, I did actually reach out and touch the bottom of the Rosetta Stone. N- not the part where the inscription is, of course, just just the bottom of the basalt. Yes, thank, thank you for that, Mr. McMillan. And, and, and for the record, Radio Parallax officially does not condone the touching of any of the classic artifacts of antiquity. I was rather horrified to have noted uh, in the Topkapa Museum in Istanbul that field trips of school children were rubbing their hands across an ancient bust of Alexander the Great, leaving all the various oil marks, etc. It was very disturbing. But uh, speaking of the British, on this date in 1859, British naturalist Charles Darwin sends to his publisher the first three chapters of The Origin of Species, which laid out his evolutionary theory of natural selection. On April 5th, 1923, Firestone introduced tires with inflatable inner tubes. The so-called balloon tires offered better handling. This, of course, also ushered in the era of the flat tire. And on April 5th, 1969, a march in New York City to demand an end to the Vietnam War draws 100,000 demonstrators and kicks off a weekend of sit-ins, parades, and other protests across the United States. All right, our quote of the day comes from Al Gore, the former United States vice president who testified to the U.S. Congress a couple weeks back. Said, quote, if your baby has a fever, you go to the doctor. If the doctor says you need to intervene, you don't say, I read in a science fiction novel that says it's not a problem. Of course, there are some pleasant signs coming out of Washington when Al Gore was testifying before the Senate Environment Committee. He was being grilled by Republican Senator James Inhofe, the former chairman of the committee. Noted New Scientist magazine, Imhoff's manners seemed calculated to deprive the former vice president of time to respond. Barbara Boxer, the committee's new Democratic chairwoman, lost patience. 
You're not making the rules, she said, brandishing her gavel. Elections have consequences. There is progress here, noted the magazine in the last Congress. The Republicans didn't want to even speak of climate change, let alone global warming. And in a related story, the Atlantic Monthly noted this month that Greg Easterbrook, a prominent naysayer of global warming, has done an about-face and acknowledged the overwhelming scientific consensus that there are plenty of signs of climate change. And we have to talk about another related story. Uh, the French running an electric train at half the speed of sound. We'll, uh, we'll defer that to our third segment today. Our statistic of the day, and this is not exactly uh, breaking news. I've been sitting on this one since October 21st, 05. A congressional review found that the actual cost of developing weapon systems often exceeds the original price estimates by 42%. This was based on an analysis of the cost of the five top systems, according to auditors. These rose from $280 billion to $521 billion. And yes, when you see something you can't understand in life, a good rule is to look for someone's financial interest. This goes a long way toward explaining this ongoing debacle in Iraq, another subject we'll return to a little bit later. Our quip of the day comes from the late Ted Williams. It so happened in December of 1995 that Massachusetts State Senator Stephen Lynch was asked to be on the platform with other dignitaries for the opening of the Ted Williams Tunnel, connecting Boston with Logan Airport. As he settled in, Lynch found himself to be sitting next to the great Ted Williams himself. So after a few nervous moments, he got up the courage to ask Ted, what did he think of the ridiculous high salaries now often being paid to only so-so ballplayers? Williams replied, I suppose if they can get that kind of money from the boys upstairs, good for them. A bit surprised by Ted's answer, Senator Lynch then asked him how much he thought he would be getting for a salary if he were still playing. I'd say about $3 million, Ted replied. Only $3 million? Lynch asked, shocked. Last of the 400 hitters, greatest batter in baseball history, and all you think you'd get today to be $3 million? Williams turned around to look at the young senator and with a smile and said, Well, you gotta realize, I'm 77 years old. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, last week was a good week for the makers of king-size beds. After a University of Vienna study found that when men slept alongside their female partners, They woke up the next day less rested and with impaired cognitive functions. We were never meant to sleep in the same bed as each other, said a sleep expert. And it was a bad week for honoring thy father and mother. When apparently Rolling Stone wild man Keith Richard told an interviewer for New Music Express that he had mixed his father's ashes with cocaine and inhaled them. This sparked a storm of controversy. He was quoted in the article as saying, the strangest thing I've ever tried to snort, my father. I snorted my father. He was cremated and I couldn't resist grinding him up with a little bit of blow. 
My dad wouldn't have cared. It went down pretty well, and I'm still alive. Richards subsequently denied that he ever snorted the cremated ashes of his late father. A Richards representative told MTV the comments were just an example of the legendary guitarist's wacky sense of humor. It was said in jest, she explained. I can't believe anyone took it seriously. Well, from what we know about Keith Richards on this program, uh, well, we can believe that people took it seriously. And it surely was an ugly week this week for sinners. After Pope Benedict XVI declared that hell is not a metaphor, but a place where the damned actually burn in everlasting fire. Said the Pope, it really exists and is eternal, even if nobody talks about it much anymore. All right, and one final item. We're not really sure whether it's good or bad or ugly, but it has been noted that Native American tribes have now installed a huge sightseeing platform which extends out over the Grand Canyon. We mentioned this mainly so we can quote from Newsweek magazine's uh, quip on this item, which uh, they captioned as, Paging Wiley Coyote. Uh, in the, from the mailbag, we were sent an item uh, for our perusal that uh, I thought was curious. My gut reaction to it was, this has to be wrong, so I looked it up on Snopes. You may have seen this. You may have gotten the same email. It's been circulating recently. The claim is made in it that actor Lee Marvin and Bob Keeshan, better known as television's Captain Kangaroo, fought together at Iwo Jima. Alleged dialogue from The Tonight Show is included uh, on this email. Johnny Carson supposedly asks Lee Marvin about his experiences on Iwo Jima, and uh, Marvin allegedly responded, Johnny, I'm not lying. Sergeant Keishan was the bravest man I ever knew. That's Bob Keishan. You and the world know him as Captain Kangaroo. Well, the facts of the matter are Lee Marvin did enlist in the U.S. Marines in World War II. He did see action as a private first class. He was injured, in fact, uh, during, his, um, during his tour, but that was during the battle for Saipan, not for the Battle of Iwo Jima, which took place several months later. Bob Keeshan, later famous as television's Captain Kangaroo, also enlisted in the U.S. Marines, but he did so too late to see any action during World War II. Included in this same email is the allegation that Mr. Rogers of TV fame was a U.S. Navy SEAL, combat proven in Vietnam with over 25 confirmed kills to his name. It was alleged that he wore those sweaters on his television program uh, to cover up the many tattoos on his forearm and biceps. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there's no truth in it, according to Snopes.com. Mr. Rogers uh, never served in the military. And speaking of screwball stories, we have this one, which is clearly uh, an incomplete news item from uh, the Gulf of Mexico. Apparently, a couple on a princess cruise fell 60 feet from the ship and into the sea while the princess cruise's grand princess was steaming toward Costa Maya, Mexico. 
After friends reported them missing, the captain turned the ship around and used high-powered spotlights and rescue boats to search for the pair in six-foot seas and 30-mile-an-hour winds. Both were located and were rescued, suffering only minor injuries. <laughs> and yes, we're going to try and follow up on this story because uh, some key things seem to have been left out of the item. And let's, let's take a minute at this point. I'm going to talk about the, the French breaking uh, the world record for, uh, for electric trains. Apparently, a supercharged French TGV train smashed the world records uh, for a train on rails by hurtling along at 574.8 kilometers per hour. That's about 500 feet per second. Now, apparently, they can get Magnalev uh, trains, which are basically floating above the rails. The world record for that is 580 kilometers per hour. The nice thing about this, the French are doing this with an electric train in a country where most of the power is being generated by nuclear plants. These trains are not going to contribute to global warming. In fact, by allowing you to get uh, from point A to point B at airplane speeds, uh, they're going to avoid all of the issues of, uh, you know, what airplanes burn, which is an awful lot more than, uh, you know, ground vehicles. And uh, all of the inf interference from um, clouds, which during the night uh, are fairly significant contributors to, uh, you know, reflecting heat back down to the earth. I know many listeners are adamantly opposed to the idea of nuclear power, uh, that is, in regards to fission power, conventional nuclear plants. But uh, at this point in time, it seems to me that this is kind of like, uh, you know, we're in the ambulance, we need some oxygen to get to the hospital. And uh, nuclear power can provide the function of keeping you alive long enough till we have a good substitute. We do not have adequate power available to us from green methods such as wind, tides, geothermal, etc. It's just an unfortunate reality of the present time. And that's, uh, that's a topic for another day's show, but I just couldn't resist putting that plug in there. And uh, speaking of greenhouse gases, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, ruled last week in what's being described as an epic environmental decision that the Bush administration could not claim that the EPA need not be involved with carbon dioxide emissions because it wasn't a, quote, pollutant, unquote. George W. Bush's EPA had concluded that a limit on carbon dioxide was a de facto limit on vehicle fuel efficiency, since the easiest way to reduce carbon emissions is to improve a vehicle's gas mileage. It claimed the matter was in the purview of the Department of Transportation, which set fuel efficiency standards. Writing the court's majority opinion, Justice John Paul Stevens said the EPA was muddling a very clear issue. He said, quote, that Department of Transportation sets mileage standards in no way licenses EPA to shirk its environmental responsibilities. Unfortunately, this was a five to four decision. Stevens was joined by his so-called liberal colleagues, Stephen Breyer, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and David Souter, along with the court's swing vote, Anthony Kennedy. To this correspondent, this whole idea that, uh, you know, that the EPA shouldn't regulate CO2 emissions, it's a pretty lame argument, uh, but it was a lame argument that seemed pretty acceptable to the court's four conservative justices, John Roberts, Sam Alito, Antonin Scalia, and Clarence Thomas. It does appear that John Roberts and Sam Alito are showing their true colors as Bush appointees.
And from a political standpoint, it was very clever for Bush's daddy to have gotten Clarence Thomas in the Supreme Court and, in effect, give Antonin Scalia two votes. In the wake of this ruling, California Attorney General Jerry Brown held a press conference. It's been noted that this ruling gives considerable lift to California's efforts to reduce CO2 pollution. At this point in time, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know how you can describe CO2 as anything other than a pollutant, at least when it's being emitted in the massive quantities that uh, civilization is putting it out at. But Amy Lewers, who's the California Climate Program Manager for the Union of Concerned Scientists, said this is the light at the end of the tunnel. Today's ruling permanently wipes away all the administration's rationales for not granting California and 10 other states permission to reduce global warming pollution. At any rate, it's good news. All right, a couple final items. Uh, We were hoping to talk about Zimbabwe in today's show, but we're unable to get um, someone to do that for us. We're going to come back to that, though, I hope. Just want to quote from The Economist magazine, uh, the March 24th issue that notes that although inflation in the country is now at 17,000%, and cash is being printed so fast that it's all but worthless, causing Zimbabweans to joke that theirs is the only country where millionaires go hungry, Uh, The magazine notes that ever more luxurious cars are now seen navigating Harare's potholed streets and broken traffic lights. It does appear that those insiders, uh, you know, that uh, have the inside track in Zimbabwe may want to oust their former leader. Jonathan Moyo, an outspoken independent member of parliament, claims that the old man is isolated in the party and losing his political touch. It should be noted, however, that Moyo is formerly the chief public apologist for Robert Mugabe. Solomon Majuro, an old brother-in-arms, appears to be stitching together a rival party to ditch the president. It's said that Mr. Majuro is worrying that the economic collapse of the country is threatening his own vast wealth. If there's a coup in Zimbabwe in the near future, it looks like it's going to be some of the insiders who pull it off. And in our final item of the segment, dealing with uh, rats leaving a sinking ship... We have Jim Ruttenberg's article in the New York Times, reprinted in Sunday's Chronicle. The article is about Matthew Dowd, who was a top strategist for the Texas Democrats, disappointed with Bill Clinton, who in 1999 switched parties, joined George W. Bush's political brain trust, and dedicated the next six years to getting him into the Oval Office and keeping him there. In 2004, he was appointed the president's chief campaign strategist. Notes the article, looking back, Dowd now says his faith in Bush was misplaced. In a wide-ranging interview in Austin, Dowd called for a withdrawal from Iraq and expressed disappointment in Bush's leadership. In speaking out thusly, Matthew Dowd becomes the first member of Bush's inner circle to break publicly with him. Dowd was a critical part of a team that cast Senator John Kerry as a flip-flopper who could not be trusted with national security during wartime. Dowd says he's even written but never submitted an op-ed article titled Kerry Was Right, arguing that Kerry, a Massachusetts Democrat and 2004 presidential candidate, was correct in calling last year for a withdrawal from Iraq. Dowd's change of heart may have something to do with his watching his oldest son prepare for deployment to Iraq as an Army intelligence specialist fluent in Arabic. He now says he's become so disillusioned with the war he considered joining street demonstrations against it, but that his continued personal affection for the president 
had kept him from joining protests in which anti-Bush fervor is central. Well, we say better late than never, but uh, we, we have to wonder about this guy a little bit. Dowd said he decided to become a Republican in 1999 after uh, working closely with Bob Bullock, the Democratic lieutenant governor of Texas, who uh, was a political client. Said Dowd, it's almost like you fall in love. But in the wake of being dumbfounded by things like Bush not firing Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld, he says in retrospect he was in denial. When you fall in love like that, then you notice some things that don't exactly go the way you thought, what do you do? Like in a relationship, you say, no, 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 it'll be different. But then, said the article, he saw no change after the 2004 election. We'll have more to say on this topic in segment two, but let's take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. We are back. I have an item here that we have to start out our second segment with because it's one of the most mind-blowing statistics I've heard in quite some time, and I don't think it got anywhere near the press it deserved. The item is as follows. In this case, I'm going to quote the Boston Globe, but it was here and there on the Internet. Half of all American troop deaths in Iraq have been caused by explosives plundered from Saddam Hussein's weapons depots according to a new report by the Government Accountability Office. These depots, filled with hundreds of thousands of tons of shells, grenades, and other explosives, remained unguarded for months after the U.S. took control of Iraq. We are losing troops to what are called IEDs, Improvised Explosive Devices. Until this uh, data came out, we didn't know that half of the E in all of those IEDs came from explosives that were not secured because it was politically unpalatable to go into Iraq with sufficient troops to adequately supervise the country. Before we went to war, we discussed on this program the fact that many military experts said that going in with the 130 to 160,000 troops, whatever it was we did, was about half the number needed to do the job properly. The uh, administration derided those people who took that cynical view and said they were way off base. It seems clear at this point that they were not, and we're paying for that now with the lives of many of our troops. It appears that George Bush is not taking the advice of people like James Baker, the man who probably more than any other human being except Karl Rove is responsible for the George W. Bush presidency. Baker's Baker's description of the war in Iraq as uh, going badly seems to be ignored by President Bush, who this Tuesday denounced irresponsible Democrats 
for their going on to spring break without approving money for the Iraq war with no strings attached. CBS News quoted Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid as saying, We're not going to allow the president to continue a failed policy in Iraq. We represent the American people's vision on this failed war. And it appears that uh, Republican Party stalwarts like uh, Robert Mugabe's pals over in Zimbabwe are defecting from their leader. Senator Chuck Hagel, Republican of Nebraska, who is the ranking Republican on the Foreign Relations Committee, by all uh, measures a conservative's conservative, is now openly using the I-word. Criticizing Bush, Hagel said, The president says, I don't care. He's not accountable anymore, which isn't totally true. You can't impeach him. And before this is over, you might see calls for his impeachment. I don't know. It depends on how this goes. And Sunday's Sacramento Bee reprinted this from Rolling Stone magazine, which is worth taking a moment to talk about. A panel of experts told writer Tim Dickinson the war is lost, surge or no surge. Even if we had a million men to go in, it's too late now, said retired four-star general Tony McPeak, a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff during the Persian Gulf War. Humpty Dumpty can't be put back together again. Here is the panel of experts, three scenarios of what, uh, what may transpire in Iraq. The best case scenario was described as civil war in Iraq and a stronger Al-Qaeda. The best we can hope for is an Iraq that's politically passive but hostile toward America, said Zbigniew Brzezinski, President Carter's national security advisor. Said Nir Rosen, author of in the belly of the beast. It's complete anarchy now. Americans are still killing Iraqi civilians left and right. There's no government in Iraq. It doesn't exist outside the green zone. We deliberately created a weak government so that we would have final authority over everything in Iraq. The best you can hope for is that the war doesn't spill into neighboring countries. Okay, keep in mind, that's the panel's best case scenario. What's described as the most likely outcome is Years of ethnic cleansing and a war with Iran. Said Bob Graham, ex-chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, this administration seems to be getting ready to make, at a much more significant escalated level, the same mistake in Iran that we made in Iraq. If Iraq has been a disaster, this would be multiple times Iraq. The extent to which this could be the horror of the 21st century is hard to exaggerate. Added Brzezinski, if the war continues without any American willingness to accommodate regionally and to pull out, the Iraq war will be extended to Iran. Then we have what could only be described as the worst case scenario, which is World War III. Said General McPeak, Israel sees that it's threatened by these developments. Once the Israelis get involved, then everybody piles on and you've got nuclear events going off in the Middle East. He concluded, our country's international standing has been frittered away by people who don't have the foggiest understanding of how the hell the world works. America has been conducting an experiment for the past six years, trying to validate the proposition that it really doesn't make any difference who you elect president. Now we know the result of that experiment. If a guy is stupid, it makes a difference. Those are the words of retired four-star general Tony McPeak. He was a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff during the Persian Gulf War. We're going to talk uh, cartoons in segment three a bit, and I think no one, uh, no one hits the nail on the head more accurately than Gary Trudeau in Doonesbury. In uh, his six panels that uh, were in Sunday's Sacramento Bee and elsewhere, he pretty much summarized the situation of uh, the grunts, 
the soldiers on the ground over there, where he has two of them in conversation. Sarge, I don't understand the debate in Congress. How is cutting off war funds not supporting the troops? Does it mean we'll be stranded here without ammo or rations? Sergeant replies, of course not. It just means we'd have to withdraw. Soldier, really? So if Congress doesn't support the troops, I go home to my family. But if they do support us, we have to keep returning to the meat grinder. Sergeant, uh, right. Soldier, okay. I don't mean to sound ungrateful. Sergeant, permission to think it through, denied. That's a commentary in six comic panels by Gary Trudeau. Let's take a little bit of a longer commentary from the March 24th Economist magazine titled Briefing Iraq. Actually, that's the heading. The title is Mugged by Reality. The magazine tracked down one of the Iraqis who was hitting that statue of Saddam Hussein with a sledgehammer when American troops pulled it down. Said the magazine, One of the men who took a hammer to Saddam's statue told the world's media this week that although Saddam was like Stalin... The occupation is worse. What went wrong? The most popular answer of the American neoconservatives who argued loudest for the war is that it was a good idea, badly executed. Kenneth Edelman, he of Cakewalk, has since called the Bush national security team among the most incompetent of the post-war era. Said the magazine, that excuse is too convenient by half. It is what the apologist for communism said. But there can be no denying the project was bungled from the start. Keep in mind, these are the words of The Economist magazine, a conservative British publication. The war was launched by a divided administration that had no settled notion on how to run Iraq after the conquest. The general who warned Congress that stabilizing the country would require several hundred thousand troops was sacked for his prescience. So the magazine, Mr. Rumsfeld's one big idea seemed to be that it was not the job of the armed forces he was transforming to become policemen, social workers, or nation builders. As a result, he sent too few, and they did nothing to prevent looters from picking clean all of Iraq's public buildings the moment the regime collapsed. Stuff happens, was the defense secretary's comment. America's plans for Iraq's political transition were also rudimentary to the extent that they existed at all. The Pentagon wanted Ahmed Chalabi and his fellow exiles put swiftly in charge. The State Department thought an American administration would have to be installed. Jay Garner, an amiable general called in from retirement to manage the transition under the understaffed ad hoc body known as the Office of Reconstruction and Humanitarian Assistance, received no intelligible instructions from Washington. When the Americans discovered the obvious, Iraqis could not take charge of a state whose institutions had collapsed General Garner was called home and replaced with a viceroy. Paul Bremer set up his coalition provisional authority inside of one of Saddam Hussein's palaces at the heart of a fortified green zone cut off by tall blast walls from the life of the city. Unlike his predecessors, Bremer had firm views about what needed to be done, views which in short order produced big mistakes. He disbanded the Iraqi army and put tens of thousands of resentful, jobless men with military training out onto the streets. He turfed thousands of Ba'ath Party members out of the bureaucracy, thereby depriving many ministries of their only trained staff. Anyway, I'm not going to read from the whole article, but you should uh, check it up. I think it's probably on The Economist website, but I would like to read the close. Too many people in Washington were fixated on proving an ideological point, that America's values were universal and would be digested effortlessly by people a world away. 
Messrs. Bush and Rumsfeld chose to send less than half the needed soldiers and gave no proper thought to the aftermath. What a waste. Most Iraqis rejoiced in the toppling of Saddam. They trooped in the millions to vote. What would Iraq be like now if America had approached its perilous, monumentally controversial undertaking with humility, honesty, and courage? Thanks to the almost criminal negligence of the Bush administration, nobody now will ever know. At any rate, uh, this message from The Economist is apparently not sinking in in Washington. Uh, on Tuesday, uh, George Bush said that uh, given his promised veto of anything containing a deadline and the likelihood that his veto would be sustained on Capitol Hill, Bush said the Democrats are merely engaging in games that undercut the troops. And uh, it's surely not going to get better in, in 2009, January 29th, when someone succeeds George W. Bush, if that, uh, if that person is a Republican because it appears that all the frontrunners are lining up to back up our Iraq war policies. Most prominent among them, John McCain. John McCain just went to Baghdad and apparently answered those critics who say that the only safe place uh, in the entire country is in the green zone. McCain went on a radio program said he could walk freely through certain areas of Baghdad. I just came from one, he replied. Things are better and there are encouraging signs. He added, quote, never have I been able to go out into the city as I was today, unquote. But according to the same New York Times report filed on Tuesday, a day after members of an American congressional delegation led by Senator John McCain pointed to their brief visit to Baghdad's central market as evidence that the new security plan for the city was working, uh, the merchants there were incredulous about the American conclusions. What are they talking about? Ali Jassam Faid, the owner of an electrical appliance store, said, the security procedures were abnormal. According to the newspaper, the delegation arrived at the market, which is called Georgia, on Sunday with more than 100 soldiers in armored Humvees, the equivalent of an entire company. Attack helicopters circled overhead. A senior American military official in Baghdad said that soldiers redirected traffic from the area and restricted access to the Americans. Sharpshooters were posted on the rooftops. The congressmen wore bulletproof vests throughout their hour-long visit. Said Mr. Fayad, they paralyzed the market when they came. This was only for the media. Now, uh, shortly after uh, their outing at a news conference, John McCain and his three congressional colleagues described Georgia as a safe, bustling place full of hopeful and warmly welcoming Iraqis. Like a normal outdoor market in Indiana in the summertime, offered Representative Mike Pence, an Indiana Republican who was a member of the delegation. It's noted that during their visit, the Americans were buttonholed by merchants and customers who wanted to talk about how unsafe they felt and the urgent need for more security in the markets and throughout the city. They asked about our conditions, and we told them the situation was bad, said Abu Sharif Kaudhuri. When the paper tried to ask McCain about this, uh, a Senate spokesman said he was unavailable for comment because he was traveling. On Monday, several merchants said that Americans' visit might have only made the market a more inviting target for insurgents. Every time the government announces anything, that the electricity is good or the water supply is good, the insurgents come to attack it immediately, said Abu Samer. At any rate, we would refer you to the current edition of Newsweek magazine, a special issue titled Voices of the Fallen. This is the Iraqi War in the Words of America's Dead. The magazine this week reprints letters, journals, and emails to loved ones sent by men and women who died in the line of duty.
We're not going to even attempt to read from that on this program, but would suggest that you need to take a look at it uh, either on the web or perhaps get a copy on the newsstands. We just think we need to return uh, to noting that, again, when you see something you can't understand, look for the financial interest. Someone's making a great deal of money, well, <laughs> what were we, 400 to $500 billion on the Iraq War? We would refer you to the current edition of The Week magazine on newsstands and their briefing on the Halliburton Connection. What better way to talk about the military-industrial complex than to quote a bit from this article? We first answer the question, what does Halliburton do in Iraq, by noting virtually everything the military itself doesn't do. The giant conglomerate's logistics and construction unit builds housing, delivers mail, provides cafeteria services to the 150,000 U.S. troops, its oil field services unit is in charge of repairing Iraq's oil production facilities. And all in all, the contracts of just this one company are worth more than $4.5 billion per year. So for a war lasting four years, that means that just this one company has taken $18 billion of the taxpayers' dollars to run cafeterias, deliver mail, build housing, and just kind of provide the infrastructure. During our upcoming pledge drive in uh, two weeks, we're going to offer the excellent DVD Iraq for sale as a premium for anyone contributing uh, during our hour of fundraising. That, uh, that excellent documentary talks about some of the things that this article talks about, where uh, the Week magazine posed the question, what have the auditors found regarding Halliburton? They noted in just one case, Halliburton billed the government $27.4 million for a shipment of natural gas from Kuwait that cost the company 82000 Now, Halliburton claimed that the extra charges were justified by the danger of transporting gas over Iraq's sniper and bomb-infested roads. Now, you'd ask, well, what, what's a reasonable markup? Doubling what it cost you? Tripling? Quadrupling? Five times? In this case, for every dollar it cost Halliburton to move that, uh, that natural gas, it charged you and me, the taxpayer, $334. So invest a dollar, make $333 profit. It's pretty good. And the thing is, you know, the, when the former CEO becomes the vice president and is instrumental in going to war, well, it just smells bad to a lot of people. In fact, it smells pretty bad to us. We will say one thing about Halliburton, though. It does, to some degree, transcend mere party politics. Democrats and Republicans may come and go, but, uh, you know, the military-industrial complex seems to stick around. Noted the magazine uh, regarding the history of the company. It was an oil and gas services company founded in 1919 by what was described as an eccentric inventor named Earl Halliburton. Halliburton never concealed his contempt for the government, and the company did little business with the government until 1962, when it merged with Brown and Root a Texas construction firm that had bankrolled many Texas politicians, most especially then-Vice President Lyndon Baines Johnson. When Johnson became president after Kennedy was assassinated, the U.S. government quickly became one of Halliburton's biggest customers, prompting charges that the Johnson administration was playing favorites. Of course, back in the 60s, the American taxpayers spent uh, millions and millions and, I suppose, billions of dollars building the giant facility at Cameron Bay, which is now serving the Republic of Vietnam as, I think, their main, uh, main transshipment point for the nation. Well, come on, Wall Street, don't lose all my man, the score of gold, gold is 
trade. Just when we pray that if they drop the bomb, they drop it on the Viet Cong. And it's one, two, three, what are we fighting for? Yes, I think Country Joe McDonald had it right back in 1968. There's plenty of good money to be made supplying the Army with the tools of the trade. We can't resist plugging at this point also that Barry Melton, now a public defender here in Yolo County, was uh, the guitarist for Country Joe and the Fish and I think played at Woodstock. Uh, he has not been on this program, but I believe that uh, Ron and Richard have had him on more than once over at uh, Speaking in Tongues, heard on this same radio station every Friday at 5 o'clock. All right, we promised on last week's program we'd try and get an Indiana correspondent, and it looks as though we have one. Jeremy Newton uh, now joins us from uh, the the environs of the University of Indiana, and uh, I guess that's in Bloomington. He's a former KDVSer and can uh, update us on, on the relationship, I think, between the two states. Jeremy, welcome to Radio Parallax. Hi, Doug. How are you? I'm well. Remind uh, remind our listeners what uh, what your role was here in KDVS. Uh, I was a DJ at KDVS for about four years, and uh, during that time, I was a host with uh, with Ed, who currently hosts the show on Thursday night there at 10 p.m. But uh, we were on Monday nights uh, for a long time, hosting a show called Get Off uh, Your Mustang, Sally. Uh, my DJ name was Remy, and for about three years I also served as a uh, music director. And uh, uh, I tell you, I do miss KDVS a lot because uh, there's definitely nothing like uh, that organization there. Well, you're, you're at a community station in Indiana now. Uh, yes, I just got involved with uh, WFHB. Uh, it's uh, WFHB.org on the web, and you know they have streaming music and uh, news and things like that, but it's kind of a similar situation to KDVS in that, you know, it's a community radio station. Uh, They uh, do things like uh, free speech radio news as far as uh, syndicated programming. They also do a good bit of local uh, news programming and, of course, uh, free-form music um, for most of the day. So it's kind of a good situation. I didn't realize that I'd get an opportunity to DJ again. Um, and I just did a little bit of a search on the Internet and found out that there's community radio here in uh, Indiana. And, Jim, I understand that you are, you're involved with uh, psychiatry, cognition, and the law. Is that, is that right? Or? I teach uh, psychology and law. I'm not quite a psychiatrist. <laughs> um, and right now I'm actually uh, a fellow over at DePaul University, which is about uh, 35 minutes uh, to the north of, uh, of Bloomington. Isn't that where they just had the sorority girl trouble? Yes, yes it is, and uh, it's been really interesting to see it all happening up front. Uh, you know, Greencastle, Indiana is where the school is located okay. at. We're a small mm-hmm. university, about 2,200 students, a uh, small town, about 10,000 people, and uh, you don't expect to pull up uh, to work and see uh, CNN trucks <laughs> sitting outside. <laughs> well, now, did, did they get a bad rap, or are they really dumping out the girls that were they thought too fat and not hip? Basically what happened was that the the National uh, Sorority Organization uh, uh, came in and and reviewed, uh, or what they say was they came in and interviewed uh, the the sorority members, and uh, they uh, let go of whom they say was uh, basically people that were not um, committed to their recruitment. Um, And now on the face of it, what it appears is that there was a lot of gray area in the in the uh, what you know whatever they used to to decide who wasn't committed, and it seems like the people that remained were 
those who fit the the uh, ideal sorority the ideal sorority member. And so there was a lot of hubbub over that for a long time. Hmm. I'm glad that it's it's starting to come to a close now <laughs> with uh, the university severing ties with the sorority. But unfortunately, the national organization. Uh, uh, Delta Zeta has now uh, sued the university, so I guess we'll see what happens from here. <laughs> well, Jeremy, uh, I appreciate your coming to talk to us. Maybe we can talk about psychiatry and the law in the future, and I bet I bet we will. But before we go, I wanted to ask you anything about uh, Congressman uh, Mike Pence. Uh, actually, no, I don't. I'm still getting the hang of uh, local politics. So. All right, well let, well, let me just ask you this. You've probably seen an outdoor market in Indiana. Sure, sure. Yeah. Have you ever noticed, like, 100 armed soldiers in Humvees attack helicopters in the air and snipers on the rooftop? No, not yet. Indiana's kind of a peaceful place. Okay, so that probably wouldn't constitute a normal Indiana summer market, for as far as you know. No, otherwise we just have lots of corn here. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jeremy Newton, thanks for joining us. We hope that we'll talk to you again in the future. And uh, any, any final words for Davis before we go? Um, I just wanted to say that, you know, there's a KDVS fundraiser coming up, and uh, it's a really ideal way of uh, supporting community radio. And, uh, you know, KDVS is an organization that is well worth supporting. And, uh, you know, I I actually wish that I was still working with the organization, but uh, it's difficult to do that from so far away. So, yeah, stay tuned for the KDVS fundraiser coming up in a few weeks. Well, sir, well spoken. Jeremy Newton, thanks for that, and we'll, uh, we, we will talk in the future, I'm sure. Okay, bye-bye. All right, let's take a much-needed break. I'm Douglas Everett, this is Radio Parallax, and in a moment we'll come back and speak with our good friend James Israel, publisher and editor of the Comic Press News, now known as the Humor Times. Rockin' in Boston and Pittsburgh, PA, deep in the heart of Texas and round the Frisco Bay, all over St. Louis and down in New Orleans, all the cats gonna dance with sweet little 16, sweet little 16. All right, we are back. Uh, joining us in this segment, as promised at the top of the show, is our good friend James Israel, the editor and publisher of The Humor Times, formerly known as the Comic Press News, currently celebrating its 16th anniversary, bringing people in the greater Sacramento area the America's best political cartoons. Welcome back, James. Yeah, thanks for having me. Now, uh, 16 years, that's, uh, that's, that's quite remarkable. Yeah, sweet 16th. It's, uh, it's been a long ride. Uh, Kind of makes me feel old to say 16 years, but... <laughs> Explain the, this deal about the Humor Times. You've changed the name, you're going to change the format, or how's that going to work? Format's basically the same, um, but uh, changed the name for several reasons. One is, I've gotten feedback through the years that uh, a lot of people just never picked it up because they saw a comic in the name, and that brought to mind to them was like uh, the Sunday Funnies. Well, we, we should emphasize, you guys are a long way from Family Circle. 
Yeah, that's it. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. To me, humor um, just encompasses more, you know, because uh, we do have other stuff in there besides cartoons, uh, notably Will Durst column. And uh, one thing we are adding is a little fake news section. Oh, Kind of similar to uh, the Onion newspaper, if your listeners are familiar with that. I'm, I'm sure they are. We've actually talked to an editor of, of, of the Onion on this show twice. So, yeah, uh-huh. I'm, sure, I'm sure people are tuned into the Onion. Pretty funny stuff. So a little, little of that kind of flavor. It's not their stuff. It's other stuff. Well, uh, now you're having an event. Uh, you mentioned Will Durst. Of course, we've had him on. Uh, he is America's foremost political comic. And it's great that you bring him, uh, I think, every, every month to the local area. Uh, you're having a, a benefit later this month? Not a benefit, but it's a party to celebrate our sweet 16th, and uh, it's at Maryland's nightclub there at uh, 908 K Street in Sacramento. And uh, it's Thursday the 26th, start 8 p.m., go till past midnight, and Will Durst is going to be there. Okay. And uh, he's going to do a set. Some people may not realize he's a live comedian as well as a uh, columnist. Right. And he's great. He's like the best political comic and, uh, so he's like our featured thing. And then uh, opening is going to be a local uh, comedy troupe called Free Hooch Comedy Troupe. Okay. And they're really good. And then uh, closing is going to be uh, a band, Mind X. They're great. They're uh, kind of a groove funk, psychedelic rock band or whatever. And All right. they're going to be playing a couple sets at the end of the night. A lot of our listeners uh, will want to come and celebrate with you. Uh, I guess that'll be three weeks from today. Yeah. And you can get uh, tickets in advance at our website, um, humortimes.com. All right. Well, no, again, no doubt a lot of people are going to want to come and party with y'all. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Hopefully uh, all your listeners will show up. <laughs> well, I hope they do, although you got a big enough venue because we've got a lot of people <laughs> listening, I'm sure. Well, it probably would be smart to get advance tickets. It, it does hold 300, but somewhat limited. Anyway, I just want to note also, uh, in passing, The Week magazine has a list of cartoonists of the year, some of the candidates here, and uh, looks like Lukovic, uh, Tom Toll, Steve Breen, Michael Ramirez. Uh, they don't all appear in the Comic Press News, but, uh, but certainly their, their ilk is what you, what you bring the public. Right, and uh, those are all deserving names. Um, I would add a few that are in, in the uh, Humor Times, okay. such as uh, Steve Sack. He's... Uh, He's the favorite, my favorite in our paper. Uh, Tolls is great. He's, I think, the best. The only reason we don't have him is uh, the B has the rights to him, and um, if, if the, you know, if a major paper has the rights in a the city, then no one else can get him. But they don't print him nearly enough. He's just awesome. Speaking of the B, yeah, they ran an article on uh, on the Comic Press Humor Times. That's right. In the scene section last Yes, last, last week. I'm sure a lot of people want to go pick that up. That's, I'm sure, on the B website. Or a couple Tuesdays ago. Yeah, it uh, should still be there. It was a really good article. All right, final note. Uh, just, just, I don't know, final note of harmonic convergence. James, as we're talking about this, I'm looking down at this, uh, this cartoon by Michael Ramirez. I realize he went to UC Irvine when I was in med school down there, and he actually illustrated a couple pieces that I did for the school newspapers. This is a very strange harmonic convergence. That's great. All right, well, James Israel, keep up the good work. We look forward to reading uh, your monthly publication. And, uh, and before that party in three weeks, maybe we can get to, maybe you can get uh, Durst to come on and talk a little bit about, uh, about his work for you. Yeah, I'm sure he'd love to do that. So uh, remember Thursday, the 26th of April at Maryland's. Hope to see you all there. And uh, 
the 16th anniversary issue is on the stands now, so check it out. All right, James, always a pleasure. All right, thanks a lot. Sweet little 16. She's got the grown-up blue. Tight dresses and lipstick. She's sporting high heel shoes. Oh, but tomorrow morning, she'll have to change her trend and be sweet 16 and back in class again. But they'll be rocking. All right, we have less than 10 minutes left in today's program, so let's uh, let's do some science topics. Apparently, grills, the removable decorative metal frames that are snapped over teeth, can cause gum disease and tooth decay and left in the mouth for long periods. These are sometimes studded with jewels and were made popular by hip-hop artists. The American Dental Association advises wearers of grills to only do them for a few hours at a time and remove them before eating and brushing. The ADA also recommends chatting with your dentist before buying a grill. Yeah, well, good luck with that. And according to a study at New York's Beth Israel Medical Center, video games are making better future surgeons. Apparently, laparoscopic surgeons who play video games are better at their craft. Doctors who reported playing for hour-long sessions three times a week worked 27% faster and made 37% fewer errors than colleagues who had never played video games. Evidently, this correlation between video game scores and surgery test scores was direct. Evidently, the young surgeons who scored highest on Super Monkey Ball 2, Star Wars Race of Revenge, and Silent Scope also performed best in surgery. I'm glad that if my gallbladder needs to be taken out at some point in the future by laparoscopic surgery where they make a small slit, insert the fiber optic device, and snag your whole gallbladder for removal, I'm glad that process may be assisted by having played Super Monkey Ball 2. Also from the world of medicine, we have uh, the following. Waiting a few minutes after birth to clamp a newborn's umbilical cord could give him a vital boost during the first months of life, said a new Canadian study. When a baby is born, doctors usually clamp the umbilical cord immediately in the belief the extra blood from the mom will make the baby's blood too thick to flow easily. Well, I don't know. When I used to to do deliveries and clamp those umbilical cords, it never occurred to me that mom's blood was going to make babies too thick. We just did it. But at any rate, uh, a study at McMaster's University showed that waiting two minutes to clamp the cord didn't cause a problem and, in fact, was very beneficial. The extra umbilical blood staved off anemia for the first six months of life, kept the new baby's rosy cheek active and primed to learn. Said study author Aline Hutton, it lasts quite a long period of time and it's giving your baby a better start. And the folks over at NASA, uh, which is planning to go back to the moon, but noting that's a still a long way off, are thinking about an alternative, perhaps sending astronauts to an asteroid. This involves much the same technology as going to the moon, but in many respects is quite a bit easier. And it would evidently be cheaper than going to the moon because the mission would require less fuel. Well, we should go visit asteroids, and I hope we can uh, plan to start doing so sooner rather than later. I would like very much to see men walking on the surface of Mars before I check off this Earth. And speaking of Mars, scientists have spotted deep underground caves on the red planet. The Mars-orbiting Odyssey spacecraft has captured pictures of the openings of no less than seven caves on Mars' second largest volcano. 
The images suggest that the caverns are hundreds of feet deep and may lead to an underground cavern system where primitive forms of life might be insulated from the wildly fluctuating temperatures, dust storms, and radiation on the planet's surface. Some very cool stuff. Some cool stuff from the world of biology would be this item. Red-breasted nuthatches, which are, exist here in the forests of North America, have developed ways of distinguishing between the seemingly identical alarm calls of chickadees. This is the first time such subtle eavesdropping has been detected. Apparently the nuthatches tune... <laughs> I love that word, nuthatches. Tune into the alarm calls made by the black-capped chickadees when they're threatened by owls. Now to human beings... All chickadee alerts sound the same, but the nuthatches can tell whether the would-be predators are pygmy owls, which also attack small birds like themselves, or the larger great horned owls, which do not. Evidently, this determination was made up at the University of Washington uh, when researchers took some recordings of these chickadees responding to the two owl types and noted that the nuthatches responded differently to the different alarm calls. They were far more agitated when they heard recordings of the pygmy owls and even mobbed the loudspeaker as if it were a predator. Researcher Christopher Templeton said that uh, the nuthatches probably pick up on fine-scale features in the chickadee call. Templeton said, quote, Our study shows just how much goes on in nature that we weren't aware of, unquote. And as regards this uh, the scandal over uh, the cat food being contaminated by um, evidently some tainted wheat gluten, I'm curious about the fact that uh, all these brands, various brands, were made in the same factories and were all contaminated, which makes you wonder, when you pay all that extra amount for premium canned cat food, are you really getting your money's worth? All right, here's an item that points out that the sea sponge may lead the way to cheaper solar cells. Marine sponges are uh, creatures which harvest silicon from seawater and use it to build the spiky filaments that cover their bodies. The usual methods of, uh, of making solar cells involve high temperature and very low pressure, which makes it very expensive. The researchers at UC Santa Barbara have noted uh, that... Um, that sea sponges naturally synthesize pristine layers of silica without benefit of such high temperatures or low pressures. They use an enzyme, silicatin, to catalyze the conversion of silicic acid in seawater into its silica spikes. And we bet if you check up with this in the next uh, few years, we're going to find they're going to make this work. And that does it for time. Our thanks to James Israel of the Comic Press News, now known as the Humor Times, and our Indiana correspondent, Jeremy Newton. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. On next week's program, we expect to speak with New York Times correspondent Chris Hedges about his new book, American Fascists, The Christian Right and the War on America. Chris Hedges was part of a team of reporters at the New York Times that won the 2002 Pulitzer Prize for its coverage of global terrorism. It promises to be a most fascinating interview, and we'll hopefully bring you that next week. We'll see you then.